Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Interior Integration for Catholics brings to you in each episode the best psychological information essential for your human formation, knowledge that is fundamental in shoring up the natural foundation for your Catholic spiritual life. This podcast helps you focus inward on your interior integration to help you bring together the different parts of yourself into unity and harmony in the natural realm and also into unity and harmony with God. In this podcast, we confront the tough internal questions we Catholics have in our day-to-day lives. We confront head-on our struggles in the natural realm, the psychological difficulties that keep us from fully loving our Lord and our Lady in a deep, personal, intimate way and living out our vocations, including our vocation to Catholic marriage, which necessarily brings us into both sexuality and Christianity. And we're dealing with sexuality and Christianity in this episode for two primary reasons. First, to free you to love God our Father, Jesus our brother, the Holy Spirit who is love himself, and our Mother Mary more and more over time. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Well, if you are married, your first neighbor, your closest neighbor, the neighbor to whom you have the most responsibilities is your spouse. That's right, because of your marriage vows. So I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. I'm here with you to be your host and guide. This podcast is part of Souls and Hearts, our online outreach at soulsandhearts.com which is all about helping Catholics shore up the natural foundation for their spiritual lives, all about overcoming psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God and neighbor. We are celebrating our one-year anniversary here at the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. Our first episode launched on March 20th, 2020. Back in those days, it was called the Coronavirus Crisis Carpe Diem podcast. And we have had a lot of success. 60 episodes now. The majority of podcasts don't make it to 14 episodes, and it's because of you, because you have been a faithful audience. Thank you very much for helping us not only survive, but to thrive. We are now in the top 15% of podcasts based on monthly downloads. Tells me there's a hunger out there for grounding the Catholic spiritual life on a solid natural foundation. It tells me there's an interest in integrating internal family systems, parts work with a Catholic understanding of the human person. So, Much gratitude, much appreciation. Thank you for helping us grow and for letting others know about what we're about. Your support really increases my motivation, gives me energy to continue doing these podcasts. So this is episode 60. It's released on March 22nd, 2021, and it's titled, How Well Do You Really Know Your Spouse? This is the 12th episode in our series on sexuality, and it's the fourth episode in our sub-series, on sexuality and Catholic marriages. We are continuing with the model of a canopied marriage bed to illuminate what happens sexually in Catholic marriages. So in episode 58, that was two episodes ago, I provided you with a model of a Catholic canopy marriage bed. And this marriage bed represents the sexual life of a married Catholic couple. And it has all these parts. We started out with the floor, the floor upon which the bed rests. 
And this is really the presence of God in our belief that he has everything under control, that he loves us, that we're his beloved children. We started there in the last episode in 59. Now we're addressing the four legs of the bed. So the first leg is the husband's commitment to his own interior integration and his own human formation. The second leg is the wife's commitment to her own interior integration, her own human formation. The third leg is understanding one's own and one's spouse's attachment needs and integrity needs. And the fourth leg is using internal family systems approaches to understand myself and my spouse better. And we're going to start here today with this leg. I know it's leg number four, but we're going to make it the first one that we go through in depth. We're going to explore this in depth in this podcast episode. But let's just kind of review the rest of the model of the bed. The frame in the box spring is the firm, unwavering commitment of the husband to his marriage vows and the wife to her marriage vows separately, independently, not contingent on each other's commitment, but separately committing. Next is the mattress, and that is empathetic attunement. It's the capacity to really enter into the spouse's experiential and phenomenological world. Then we have two pillows, which are self-acceptance and spouse acceptance, and that is accepting the person in their totality as they are. The bottom sheet or the fitted sheet is sexual attraction, the intensity of sexual passion. It's eros in the marriage. The top sheet is the communication between the spouses. The blankets represent the human warmth and emotional connection between the spouses. Then we have four bedposts that spiral up from the four corners of the bed. Imagine two spirals intertwined like a double helix structure of DNA. And these represent the couple's mindset, heart set, body set, and soul set. And then we have the canopy. Remember, this is a canopied bed. It's very fancy. We have the canopy on the bed and the curtains, which provide the privacy and protect the marriage. They can also be unfortunately used to hide dysfunction or exploitation or even abuse. And then we have the sham, the bedspread, and the bed skirt. And these are used to cover up the bed and to give an impression of the state of our married life to the world. Right, so we've just begun to work with this metaphor of the canopied marriage bed. We're walking through step by step each of the pieces And just as important, we're going to look at how all the pieces of the marriage bed, whether they're healthy or not healthy, whether they're in good shape or not, are related to each other. How all the pieces, all these things that go into Catholic sexual married life, how they interconnect and how they change over time. As a Catholic psychologist for the last two decades, I've had lots and lots of Catholic couples in my office discussing their marital problems, their sexual problems. And over and over and over again, I see the same thing. Catholic couples who are married 5, 15, 25, 40 years or more, and they do not know each other. Catholic spouses do not know each other. They know a lot about the spouse. They know a lot of biographical details. They know a lot about their spouse's behaviors. But their internalized image of the spouse, the working model that they have of the spouse, the way they represent the spouse inside is often 
very distorted, very two-dimensional, very simplistic, and interpreted through one's own filters, lenses, biases, and needs. So this episode is titled, How Well Do You Really Know Your Spouse? So get ready. Prepare yourself for light bulbs to switch on and shine brightly as we explore new and much clearer ways of thinking about sexual life in Catholic marriages grounded in the perennial teachings of the Catholic Church and informed by the best of psychology. All right, let's, what is the situation? What's the lay of the land here with Catholic couples? I'm just going to start off with five bold claims. First of all, I'm going to say you don't really know your spouse. Second, your spouse doesn't really know you. I'm also going to argue your father didn't or doesn't really know your mother. Fourth, your mother doesn't or didn't really know your father. And fifth, you really don't know you. And I'm not just talking about Catholic marriages in general, the average Catholic marriage, whatever that is. I'm talking about those Catholic marriages that you admire, the ones that you might look up to, the husbands and wives that you sense have a really strong marriage. I'm going to tell you, I don't think they know each other very well either. In these days, very few people can really deeply enter into the phenomenological world of anyone else, anyone, not even themselves, right? Again, I said these are bold claims. Some of you might be saying, explain yourself, Dr. Peter. Are you telling me I don't know my wife? Yeah, it's not a nice thing to say, is it? It's not a comfortable thing to hear. It may even sound a little insulting. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 15. For it was you who formed my inward parts, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Okay, my dear listeners, I'm a depth psychologist. I am very interested in the unconscious, and I will tell you from experience over and over and over again, there is so much about ourselves that we do not understand. For a decade and a half, for 15 years, I specialized in psychological assessments. I did a lot of psychological testing. And yes, there were people that came in that were distressed, and we did psychological testing to kind of get at what the underlying causes of the distress were. But I also did a lot of psychological testing for personnel evaluations, fitness for duty evaluations, things like that, where people are coming in not because they're distressed, but because it's part of the job. Air traffic controllers, for example. I did, I did a lot of testing of air traffic controllers and a lot of testing of candidates for the seminary, for religious life, for the priesthood, things like that people who are not in acute distress. And what I found out over and over again, it was quite mind-boggling, is how, how, and these, and these often were very serious people, led, you know, spiritual lives, were invested in their own formation, and they did not know themselves. They did not know themselves very well. 
Not understanding ourselves leads to so much confusion and distortion when we're relating with others because what we misunderstand about ourselves, what we don't know about ourselves, it's very likely that we're going to attribute that to another person when it comes up in our relationship with that person. If we don't own something within us, if we don't know it's there and it comes up in the relationship, there is such a human tendency in our fallen condition to attribute it to the person that we're in relationship with. We don't understand ourselves because so much of us is unconscious, so much of us is mysterious. All right, so some of you may say, oh, that's nice. Well, prove it. Prove it. Well, let me ask you one question. One question. This was the single most evocative question I would ask when doing psychological intake evaluations, when doing assessments for candidates for the religious life and for the priesthood. I would have the candidate stand in front of a full-length mirror, a huge mirror I had, and I would ask them this question. Who are you? And they had to answer it while they were looking at themselves in the mirror. And that is a way of sort of cutting to the heart of the matter. That has a way of really getting at the core dispensing with the superficial explanations. Well, I'm so-and-so, insert the name. I'm, you know, 25 years old. My parents are so-and-so and so-and-so. I grew up in such-and-such a town and, and kind of giving me the biographical details. No, that's not who you are. Often I would get back questions with something like this. I am a child of God with a up, uplift at the end right? As though it was more of a, a question than it was a statement. A lot of times I got, I got just kind of shutting down. I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't, I, you know, so it was very interesting to see how, because the critical thing is that they needed to continue to look at themselves in the mirror, which cuts down on all of the nonsense that people sometimes try to tell you or the stuff that they're that they know at some level doesn't really represent who they are. This was such a pleasant exercise along with the rest of the testing that I did because I gave the Rorschach, the, uh, the inkblot test. I had people do projective drawings and lots of pencil and paper tests too, the MMPI, the MCMI, there were all kinds of things that we did. And, it, um, and it, it got around among seminarians from certain dioceses about what it was like to go through an evaluation like this. And so instead of calling me Dr. Melanoski, the seminarians of one diocese nicknamed me Dr. Melanoscopy, right? That's kind of reflects something about how they experienced the assessment. Now, I don't like the idea of the assessment being intrusive, but when you are looking at the psychological structure and functioning of the men who are going to become priests, you've actually got to do a little digging because not everything's on the surface. And so many of these candidates did not know themselves. Very few people came in with what I would consider anything like an adequate level of self-knowledge. All right. So given that, do you know your spouse? Who is your spouse? Do you go immediately and with your whole being to the idea that your spouse is a beloved child of God, cherished by God, your heavenly father, tender, tenderly loved by your mother Mary? Do you go to your spouse as 
a part of Christ himself in his mystical body? Do you look at your spouse as a partaker in God's divine nature? Yeah. We see these realities through a veil, through, through a lot of fog, through a lot of distortions. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, St. Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, lest you wonder if I'm inflating myself in some way, I do not make the claim that I really know myself at the kind of level that I would like to or that I'm advocating for you, nor do I know my wife at that level. At one point, I thought I did, and I think I know my wife better than most husbands know their wives, but that, frankly, isn't saying much. It's just a relative measure. It's not an absolute measure. All right, so here comes the problem, all right? Here comes the problem. Not knowing your spouse compromises your capacity to love your spouse. And not knowing yourself compromises your ability to love yourself. Because there's three elements of loving. There's benevolence, there's capacity, and there's constancy. This is something that I cooked up. So, you know, if you have criticisms of it, you think it's incomplete, by all means, let me know. But three elements of loving, benevolence, capacity, and constancy. Benevolence, that's willing the highest good for your spouse, right? Being ready to sacrifice and suffer to bring about your spouse's good. We talked about this in the last episode. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? This sacrificial love, the benevolence, but it's the willingness, right? It's the willingness. It's in the will. Second one, the capacity to love. Because it's not just about the benevolence. It's not just about the will, right? If I have to go in for surgery, I don't want a surgeon who just has good will. I want the, a surgeon that has the capacity to do the surgery well. Your capacity to love, your ability to love has to do with your openness to grace, right? It has to do with, for example, are you in a state of grace? How well disposed are you to receiving graces and channeling them and sending them on to other people? It has to do with your level of virtue, not just exercising virtues, but possessing them. But it also has to do with your human formation, your natural foundation for the spiritual life. And that includes things like self-awareness, empathetic attunement, your personal development in the natural realm. And that's what I focus on in this podcast. This podcast is all about your human formation. It's all about shoring up the natural foundation for loving God and for loving your neighbor. All right, so we've got benevolence, we've got the capacity, and now we've got constancy. That's the third element. So these are not just one-off acts of love, but we're working toward a more and more consistent position of charity. You know, we want to be able to possess the virtue of charity toward the spouse. So being constant in our position towards the, towards the spouse. And where does this ignorance of your spouse that I'm claiming you have, where does it most clearly make itself known? Where is the place where the lack of understanding between Catholic spouses, where is it most clearly revealed? 
Where does the lack of self-awareness of each spouse and the lack of empathetic attunement between the spouses, where does that most clearly broadcast itself? In the Catholic marriage bed. That lack of awareness, that lack of attunement, that lack of capacity to love because of ignorance of the other person most clearly reveals itself in Catholic marriages in their sexual relationship. That's where you see it most clearly revealed. You see wives living lives of quiet desperation where they feel like they can't talk to their husbands about certain things because of how reactive they fear it could be. You have a lot of husbands harboring bitterness, resentment about things going on in the sexual relationship. There's a lot of don't ask, don't tell happening between Catholic spouses when it comes to their sexual intimacy and the issues surrounding it. There are unmet needs galore often in here. There are illusions. There is shame, shame about the body, a deep sense of unworthiness. There's problems with a frame of reference. There's problems with the question of really what's normal sexually, right? Because of how little good information is out there and how infrequently it's talked about in ways that have a sense of propriety and that are psychologically informed and that are also grounded in the perennial truths of the Catholic Church. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misery in the sexual lives of many Catholic spouses. And often there's a settling too. This is as good as it's going to get. We're just going to like leave it the way it is. There's no way that we're really going to be able to work through this. So we just have to accept the problems that we have sexually as our cross to bear. I have to accept the sexual dissatisfaction, the difficulties in the sexual relationship, just as my cross to bear, right? We get the spiritual bypassing here. We, we're trying to make lemonade out of lemons, right? We're trying to take something which very frequently could be resolved, right? And turn it into a cross, a cross of our own making, that's not necessarily a cross that God has given you. A lot of times, Catholic men and women, Catholic husbands and wives, immediately take sexual issues to the spiritual realm instead of looking at them first in the natural realm. So we can keep going on the way we've gone on in the old way. You can keep understanding yourself and your spouse in the same way, same actions, same patterns, same dynamics. It's not likely that things are going to change for the better, though. All right, so that's one approach. We can pray about it, right? God can work miracles, right? Oh, God, please help my sexual intimacy with my spouse improve. All right, so far as it goes, good. You know, it's good to pray about our sexual lives. I wish more people did pray about their sexual lives and their sexual intimacy with their spouses. But what if God wants you and needs you to work on your sexual intimacies in the natural realm, right? What if he decides not to intrude and work magic or miracles if parts of you want to keep the status quo for some reason, if parts of you are resisting the changing because of some kind of underlying fears, 
some ways of trying to protect the self and so forth. What if that's going on? What if God wants you to resolve a natural level problem using natural, ordinary means instead of intervening miraculously? Just like he's not going to create a new parking space for you in a crowded parking lot because finding a parking space is something that happens in the natural realm. It's unreasonable to expect that God is just going to create a new parking space, a new little chunk of asphalt off to the side just for your car. A lot of times people are not interested in using the natural means in order to overcome their sexual intimacy and issues. And it's understandable because of the shame, because of the embarrassment, because of the confusion, because of fears of how my, how my husband or how my wife is going to react. Totally makes sense. But we don't want to try to force God into a spiritual dimension of this when what really needs to be addressed is something in the natural dimension, something in the natural realm. So what if there was a new way to really understand both yourself and your spouse better? What if there was an entirely different way of looking at the dynamics, looking at the patterns, looking at the dysfunction that goes on between you and your spouse? What if there was? You know, as a psychologist, I've been looking for better ways to help married Catholic couples for the last two decades. I'm not just talking about relieving distress. I'm not just talking about resolving the conflicts. I'm talking about deepening the intimacy, including the sexual intimacy, including the sexual relationship. And this isn't just me as a psychologist working as a clinician with other couples. This is also me in my own marriage with Pam. Right? We're coming up on our 25th anniversary here this year. So there's been a while with that as well. Right? So what have I found? As I've gone on in my career, keeping my eyes open, searching actively for better ways, I have come across something a few years back that I think is absolutely the best thing that I have found so far, by far. And that is internal family systems approaches developed originally by Richard Schwartz. I introduced some internal family systems or IFS for short concepts back in episode 49 when we opened this series on sexuality. And we start by understanding that we are both one and many. We have a unity about us and a multiplicity about us. And in that multiplicity, we have what Richard Schwartz calls parts. And parts are separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own unique prominent emotions, body sensations, intentions, typical thoughts and beliefs, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style, and worldview. So someone might ask, are you saying that we have separate personalities within us? Dr. Peter, it sounds like you're saying that each of us has multiple personalities. You're not saying that I have multiple personalities, are you? That's exactly what I'm saying. I am saying that each of you has multiple personalities. Parts are like the different characters inside Riley, the star of the animated Pixar film Inside Out. You remember that film, right? Inside of her, 
She had a part that was anger, right? That was the one dressed in red. Sadness, who was blue. Joy, who was yellow. Disgust, who was green. And fear, who was that tall, thin, purple character. Remember how each of those internal actors would take over Riley's control panel, you know, that control panel within her, and then she would act as if she were just that one part of her. So when anger took over Riley, she would get into conflict, for example, with her father. We can see parts, and this may be easier for some of you to take in. We can see parts as distinct modes of operating. And in this mode of operating, there are prominent emotions, body sensations, intentions, typical thoughts and beliefs, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style, and worldviews. All right, so let's 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 flesh this out with an example because it always helps. Examples always help to get us to get us into a position where we can really grip onto it better. All right, so let's say husband comes home, he's got a demanding management job and human resources at a mid-sized company. At the end of the day. He's coming home at the end of the day. He spent all day dealing with problems, employee problems, and he's tired. He's worn out. He feels impatient. He feels put upon by his children. He just wants some peace and quiet. He wants something to eat, and he wants to veg out. And his wife, seeing this, says to herself, my husband is in his six o'clock funk again today. That funk in her husband is a mode of operating. It's a part. The husband has been taken over by a part. We would say he is blended with a part. And this part has particular emotions, body sensations, intentions. It's got typical thoughts, typical beliefs, desires, typical attitudes, characteristic impulses, an interpersonal style, and a worldview. So let's break it down. Let's break down the husband's six o'clock funk. What's happening here? Well, the emotions are irritation, frustration, and annoyance. But they don't happen in isolation. They go about, they go along with some body sensations, tense shoulders for the husband, and a slight headache when he's in a six o'clock funk. What are the beliefs that go along with this? Well, there's a belief that's really active that relating with people is all about their problems and all about pressure from executives about minimizing risk and liability. Relationships are draining. Relationships are costly. Those are the beliefs that go along with the six o'clock funk, with this mode of operating, with this part. What about the thoughts? Right, thoughts. Oh, wife wants to tell me about her day. Yeah, she says that. But what it really means is that she wants to tell me about all the problems with the kids and she's expecting me to solve them for her. Those are the thoughts that go along with the six o'clock funk. What about the intentions that this mode of operating has? The intentions are about wanting to get away from people, right? Because people are draining, wanting to rest, wanting to recover, trying to recharge the batteries. Those are the intentions that this part has. What about the desires that this part has in the six o'clock funk? The desires are to eat and to have the house be quiet. That's what the part wants, right? That's the desires. What's the attitude? The attitude goes along with this is something like, somebody owes me something for all I do. I'm not asking for very much. Right? That's the attitude. What are the impulses in the six o'clock funk for this husband? Impulses are to yell, shut everybody up, make it quiet, and just 
let me eat, right? That's the impulses. Interpersonal style. What kind of interpersonal style does this part have in this mode of operating, right? Grouchy, cold, non-communicative, avoidant, sometimes harsh, hard on the kids. And what's the worldview? All right, well, the worldview is sort of summed up in that old song, you know, work your fingers to the bone. What do you get? Bony fingers. Bony fingers. Now, the husband is not always in that funk. After supper, gets to be closer to 8 o'clock. He's had a chance, he's had a chance to recharge his batteries, veg out a little bit. He can kind of reemerge, and he can be much more pleasant, much more relational, in an entirely different mode of operating with the wife and the kids. Wife and the kids know that dad is not always like this. That part is not always driving him. That part is not always blended with him. That six o'clock funk is a six o'clock funk. It's not an all the time, every time funk. All right, well, let's take a look at the wife, right? Let's take a look at how she, in a very human way, often blends with a part of herself that reacts to her husband's six o'clock funk. All right, so let's talk about her reactive mode of operating. Well, when that part takes over, the emotions are sadness, and a sense of despair. Body sensations that go with that part or that mode of operating for the wife when her husband's in that funk. The sinking feeling in her stomach. The oh no. The desire to curl up. That's what's happening in her body. What about her, what about her beliefs? He doesn't really care about me. He's just caring about himself. Those the beliefs. What about the thoughts for the wife when she's in this reactive mode of operating, right? He's treating the kids too sternly. He's too inflexible. It's one thing for him to be unkind to me, but doesn't he see how hard he is on the kids? What about the intentions? She's in this mode. I just want us to be a happy family together. I just want us to be a happy family together. Desires. I want him to care for me. I want him to care for the kids. Attitudes. Helplessness. Impulses. Right? To give up. To throw in the towel. Interpersonal style when she's in this mode. What does that look like? Very cautious walking on eggshells, tightly controlling emotional expression toward the husband, not wanting to make anything worse. And what's the worldview when she's in this place, right? When she's in this mode of operating, when she's blended with this part. It sucks to be married to him. He brings us all down. We just have to take it. All right, but she also is not always in this part. And this part could also emerge when some other thing happens in some other relationship or in other circumstances, right? It's not just solely in reaction to her husband's six o'clock funk mode of operating or part. So the goal in internal family systems therapy is internal integration. It's about having parts come together under the leadership of the core self, right? So there's this model of the self as having the core self who has the innate capacity to govern the entire system well, and we'll talk more about that in a, in a minute, that core self is like the conductor of the orchestra, and all the parts are like the musicians. But here's the thing. Parts 
often get forced into extreme roles because of attachment injuries and relational traumas. These go back way back to, to us being kids. Parts get forced into extreme roles in order to bear burdens so that the burdens of shame or rage or despair or whatever do not overwhelm the whole system and also into roles of protecting against exiles that carry such burdens, right? And that help us in one way or another to sort of make it through the day in the ways that we've learned. There are three roles that parts can get forced into. First is the role of an exile. The most sensitive parts take on the roles of exiles usually, and they become injured. They're the ones that take the, that take the flack, that take the heat, that take on the burdens of trauma that threaten the entire system. They're the ones that step forward and embrace that terrible stuff and hold it so that it doesn't overwhelm us and we can continue to function. These are the parts that experienced the exploitation, the rejection, the abandonment in external relationships. And these parts desperately want care and love. They desperately want rescue. They want to be redeemed. They often struggle with shame, grief, rage, despair, all kinds of really intense emotions that would be unmanageable if they were to be experienced in their intensity in the system. Second role, managers. These are protective parts that are strategic. They focus hard on controlling the environment. They're working proactively to keep things safe. They're the ones that handle the day-to-day demands of life typically for us. And they are all about managing in a way that allows us to feel some sense of safety and security in our environment. The third group, the third role, firefighters. When the exiles break through with the intensity of their experience, when they threaten to overwhelm the system with their emotion or with their desires or with their intensity of whatever kind of experience they're carrying, these firefighters leap in to stifle, anesthetize, and distract from the feelings of the exiles. There is no concern for consequences when firefighters have taken over the control panel. They will engage in various things that can be sometimes really harmful. Binge eating, drug and alcohol use, sexual risk taking, this is where you see cutting, uh, dissociation, all kinds of things happen there. And it doesn't have to be extreme. I have a firefighter that eats chocolate, right? Eats chocolate, especially when I'm stressed about some kind of family relationship. When I have exiles that have fear coming up around family relationships or anger coming up around family relationships, chocolate, chocolate. That's what I typically will go to. So parts can take over a person like in the Pixar movie Inside Out. Like for example, when that red anger part takes over the control panel, that's what we call blending. Now parts have different attachment styles. They have different ways of trying to connect with other people. They have different histories of sexual experiences. They have different reactions to sex and relationship issues. And parts can shift abruptly. You can see these modes of operating change really rapidly. Sometimes it's really obvious in kids 
And it can also be really obvious in some adults. Sometimes it can be very, very subtle. We don't know ourselves when we don't know our own parts. And this reminds me of St. Paul in Romans 7.15 where he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. It's really interesting because we do this, right? We want to be kind and loving toward our children, but why do we snap at them, right? We want to lose weight, so why are we mowing down on the sugar and the carbs? We want to be in a prayerful, close relationship with God, but why is it that prayer seems so unpleasant or unappealing, right? It's all about parts. And, and most people don't have a very good grip on their parts at all. We are so likely to attribute something that is within us, some part that we've rejected, that we've exiled, that we've banned, that we've suppressed into the unconscious. If something comes up from that part, it's so easy to attribute it to the spouse. It's very, very hard to know anybody else's parts if you don't know your own. And you won't know your spouse If you don't really understand yourself, parts language, understanding ourselves in terms of this unity and multiplicity makes it so much easier to understand ourselves and so much easier to understand other people. So many parts are hidden because those parts consider themselves or are considered by other parts to be unacceptable, unlovable, unworthy, dangerous, harmful, inappropriate, or whatever, just unacceptable. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the self, the core self within IFS. The self is defined as the seed of consciousness. The self is also the one that is uniquely qualified to govern our systems. However, the self can be occluded or it can be overwhelmed by parts. So parts can take control. They can start driving the bus instead of the self leading the system. When the self accepts and loves the parts, those parts can transform back into who they were meant to be. They can go back to their seats in the orchestra and play the music that was for them instead of having to take on a role that they're really not equipped for. The self is an active inner leader. This is not just mindfulness. This is actually the self being active, not just some sort of passive observer. And the self has these qualities. We call them the eight C's in IFS. The self is curious, compassionate, calm, confident, courageous. The self has clarity, creativity, connectedness. And there's also the sense of kindness that goes along with that. So the goal in IFS is to have the self, the core self, be governing our parts more consistently over time. And that includes in relational and sexual intimacy, to have that recollection in the natural realm. We are going to continue to be working through sexual intimacy topics in this podcast. See if your spouse will join you in listening to this, especially as we move on. Now, if your spouse has already joined you, if you took my advice from the last two podcasts and talked about it with your spouse and your spouse joined you, I want to hear about it. You tell me. Crisis at soulsandhearts.com. That's my email. Text me, 317-567-9594. Let me know. I want to see if, if anybody's actually done this. I bet there is. I want to hear it from you. Let me know. 
continue to identify your parts. I mean, do you have a, a part that's like that six o'clock funk part from our example today, that husband coming home? What are your typical identifiable modes of operating? Write them down, right? We're building this drawing of the canopied marriage bed. You don't have to be a great artist. You can copy an image of a bed down from the internet if you want. We've got them posted in our Resilient Catholics community. Keep drawing your bed and labeling it as you come into awareness of your parts. The next episode is going to be all about how parts become active in the sexual intimacy between spouses. We're going to go through examples of how that plays out to really help you grip onto the concept. So today was more of a conceptual overview of it. Then we're going to get down into really clear examples in episode 61 coming up next week. But let's talk about what else might be helpful. There's a book called Boundaries for Your Soul by Allison Cook and Kimberly Miller. Allison Cook and Kimberly Miller are two Christian therapists who I've known now for years. I really like and respect them. We've come across each other in Christian IFS circles. They're beloved colleagues. This actually was the first and only book I've ever reviewed on Amazon. So I actually put a review up on Amazon about this book. I do recommend it. Now, this is all about internal family systems understood through a Christian lens. And it's not specifically about sexuality, but the principles and how they're grounded in Christianity make that book worth reading. Secondly, there's a book called Altogether You by Jenna Riermersma. This book just came out late last year. It's hot off the presses. And again, it is also about internal family systems grounded in a Christian anthropology. Jenna very much wants that integration of IFS with Christianity. I met her earlier this month. We were in a meeting together. She really wants to promote IFS. And after meeting her, I am excited to dive into this book in greater depth. I also am impressed by how much she has put out on her resource page, which you can go to at jennariemersma.com, J-E-N-N-A-R-I-E-M-E-R-S-M-A.com. And another resource here is by Tammy Solenberger. She has a podcast that is focused on IFS. It's called The One Inside, an internal family systems podcast. Comes out weeklies, usually on Fridays. I got to meet Tammy earlier this month as well. She is really committed to getting the basics of IFS across to the general public. She wants to make IFS more accessible to the average ordinary man and woman out there on the street, breaking those concepts down to make them easier to understand. She does a great job with that. Her podcast, The One Inside, an internal family systems podcast. For those of you that want to try to work with your own systems on your own, There is an IFS therapist by the name of Jay Early, who has authored more than a dozen books that are really like the self-help books within internal family systems. He also has a a website called personal-growth-programs.com. But you know what? It's hard to work on your parts without external help, right? If this discussion of parts resonates with you, Just think about what it would be like to be working on your human formation, on your human development as a Catholic with other Catholics who have the same goals. Just imagine that. What would it be like to form real relationships with other Catholics on the same path to be able to journey together? Well, 
The Resilient Catholics community at Souls and Hearts is all about that. Get on the waiting list for the RCC. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC to sign up. There's no obligation to join if you get on the waiting list, but you will get kind of neat stuff. I do put out weekly emails to folks on the waiting list. We've got a special event just for folks that are on the Resilient Catholics community wait list. That's coming up on April 6th. That's a Tuesday, 2021 from 7.30 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Eastern time. That's Eastern time. There's a special Zoom event. I'm going to make a brief presentation on Catholicism, sexuality, and parts. And then we're going to have me an Ask Me Anything section. I'm going to field your questions. We're going to have a great discussion. Then I'm going to discuss the resident Catholics community. We'll, I'll make a brief presentation about that. You all can ask me questions, all the benefits that we have, office hours, the premium podcast that's just for resident Catholic community members our private app, the discussion boards, all of that. We'll talk about the subscription rates and things like that. And we'll talk about what you're looking for in an online community. For current RCC members, our premium podcast this week will release tomorrow, which is Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. And that episode 60A is getting to know the parts who take you over during sex. All right, so we're going to look at what happens. This is going to be a, 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 a reflection piece. It's going to be a, an experiential exercise for those that want to, to really understand and, and create a frame for you to be able to come in contact with what happens inside your system during sex. For Catholic therapists who are listening, you know there's a community just for you. Souls and Hearts has the interior therapist community. That's at soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. It's unique opportunities to work on your formation as a therapist and your formation as a human being, right? As therapists, we often have parts that focus so much on other people. We care for other people. There can be a significant neglect of some of our own parts, some parts of our own systems. There can be this, this, this outward focus that leads us to not pay attention nearly enough to our own integration. And the interior therapist community is all about helping us to grow as men and women. You get a special premium podcast if you're in the ITC and the episode for this week, 60T, which again comes out tomorrow, March 23rd, 2021, is what is holding me back from more deeply understanding my clients' sexual lives. Usually the problem comes within the system of the therapist, right? It comes within our parts as therapists, right? So we're going to be doing some experiential exercises around getting in touch with your parts as therapists that have difficulty with discussing your client's sexual lives. I'm going to invite you to subscribe to this podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon. We haven't been deplatformed yet, so uh, you know, make hay. Let's do it. Uh, share this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast on social media. We got sharing buttons on our website at soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC. Get the word out there. There's nothing like a personal recommendation to help somebody take the time to actually listen to a podcast that would be important for them. With that, We'll wrap it for today. Again, thank you for being here. And especially thank you to everybody that's listened to all 60 of these episodes. If you're one of those people that has listened to all 60 of these episodes, I want to hear that too. Email me, crisis at soulsandhearts.com or call or text me 317-567-9594. For those of you that have hit all 60, I'd love to hear from you. All right, take care. God bless. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron. 
Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.